0: Thanks to Shopify for supporting Future Hindsight. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved for big business. For a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com hopeful. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. During the Democratic presidential primaries in early 2020, the issue of monopolies and antitrust legislation were front and center. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker repeatedly stumped on the need to break up the biggest tech companies and to shine a light on how these huge companies impact our lives and our democracy. But then we all know what happened. March 2020, the pandemic hit. That summer, Black Lives Matter occupied our hearts and minds and Main Streets following the murder of George Floyd. In the fall, Joe Biden was elected president And then, as 2021 dawned, President Trump unleashed a mob on the Capitol while claiming the election was stolen. And so, all that talk about antitrust was pretty much drowned out. But the problems didn't go away. Far from it. Apps, platforms and algorithms, run and owned by a handful of companies, are becoming ever more entrenched in our lives. So we thought we'd rerun a conversation I had with Zephyr Teachout about her book, "Break 'Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech and Big Money back in November 2020. And I wanted to play it again for you because it's maybe something to add to your civic action toolkit this midterm election year, letting your elected representatives know that while antitrust issues may not dominate the headlines right now, they're still a priority for defenders of democracy. When I spoke with Zephyr in 2020, she was a Fordham law professor. Today, she's the Senior Counsel for Economic Justice for the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. Here's my conversation with Zephyr Teachout. Thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So I loved your book. Uh, You make a really strong argument to break up monopolies like Facebook, Google, Amazon. In order to enable a moral market that is a place that allows for creativity, compassion, and warmth in the pursuit of the basic American dream, the fight against illegitimate power. So before we start, I thought we would ask a very basic question. How do you define monopoly?
1: Well, thanks for that question, because it's both basic and fraught. In fact, one of the key arguments of not just my book, but this growing anti-monopoly movement, is that we have just been defining it wrong for 40 years. And what a monopoly is, is a company that essentially has the power to set the terms of interactions. I think sometimes people think monopoly and they hear the mono and think there has to be just one. That's not true. (laughs) When Standard Oil was broken up, one of the big trust-busting moments you may have heard about, it had about 65% of the market. So basically, a monopoly is a private company that has governing power. Now, for the last 40 years, courts and enforcers have come up with a Pretty strange notion in the scope of uh, American history, but they've they've convinced themselves of its accuracy and that is basically the only way to think about monopoly is when a company uh, ends up raising consumer prices and there you know obviously when a company has the power to set the terms one of the terms that it can set that's quite dangerous is uh, consumer prices so for instance in the pharmaceutical world, we see drug monopolies that have the power to set terms and, and set really outrageous terms. But that's not the only harm here. The harm is not just about consumer prices. It's about becoming a form of private government that's sitting inside our, uh, our democracy.
0: So can you give us an example of how a private government actually works? I think one of my favorite ones is about arbitration. Maybe yeah. that's the clearest example.
1: Yeah. So I really want people to stop and think what government is. That's one of the goals here and how we see and understand power and private power. Because I think sometimes we have a tendency, often a tendency, to be weirdly formalistic about government. You know that in all other areas we say if it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck... Uh, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, But when it comes to government, we think, well, if she's not the mayor, she's not government. But of course you've had this experience of feeling governed by things that aren't elected. And one of the really more terrifying features of this growing form of private concentrated power that is coming to govern us, is that it's bringing along um, a judicial system. All governments have judicial systems, right? So uh, you remember in third grade, when your teacher asked you to design a government, she probably said, well, you need a court. Well, the courts of the big monopolies, think Visa, Amex, Amazon, Google, Monsanto, any of these, is a system called private arbitration. And what arbitration is, is it something that kind of looks like courts, but is so antithetical to the best part of the american judicial uh tradition um and it sounds nice too it sounds like if you're arbiting something that sounds soft and like gentle like why can't we all get along we should use arbitration not the conflict-ridden arena of the courts but it's actually something very dark in arbitration judges are paid by the parties to a dispute imagine that in our public court system. If you had the, 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 the parties to a dispute paying the judge, that's a direct conflict of interest. And in practice, it's the big companies that pay the arbiter the decision maker. It's totally secret. There's no right to appeal. There's no jury. There's no rules of evidence. There's no precedent. And the way in which people justify this system is because when you enter into a contract with a company, think of like when you sign up for your phone company, or uh, what I really focus on the book a lot is the experience of workers. When you take a job, your employee or your phone company will say, "Okay, we've settled all the terms. Just one last thing. Although they won't say it like this. It'll be buried in fine print. You must agree that if we later have a conflict, it will be settled by arbitration. So when you get your job at McDonald's, there's a clause there that says, if we later uh, discriminate against you, you won't get to go to open court. You will have to bring your suit in front of this private... McDonald's paid judge uh, without the rules of evidence applying. And it's a, a new ish trend. And now we, we believe that over half of all employment contracts in the United States include an arbitration clause. So it's this real like gut punch to courts and open justice systems.
0: Basically, it's a perversion of the law and makes away with justice. But let's talk a little bit. Uh, in terms of how they impose these arbitration requirements. So, for example, if I am a customer of AT&T and, you know, I sign my illegible term of, <laughs> you know, use. Yes. So, and, and I can't sue them at all if they defraud me over $50 and it's so puny. That's kind of the whole point. They don't want to be bothered and you can't have a class action suit anymore. But also in terms of the way that they hire people. And and yeah. one of the things I think is really, you start with this chapter, is the chickenization of the American middle class. And I think it exemplifies clearly how you are boxed in to certain terms, and you have no redress. How does chickenization work?
1: Yeah, we are experiencing a transformation of work right now. And People often talk about it in terms of the gig economy and, and often think about it as technologically predetermined. You know, If you are going to have technology, then we're moving to a gig economy. But I actually, I use this term chickenization, which I'll explain, because I think it's really important to understand that these are not techniques of technology. These are techniques of power. These are kind of old feudal techniques, old anti-democratic techniques. And although your eyes may glaze over and you may feel a little intimidated around the idea of, say, regulating the gig economy, I think most people feel like, okay, I may not be a farmer, but I understand farming. So let's let's look at what's happening in farming, and you see a microcosm of what's happening in the workplace across the country and across the world, but I'm very much focused on the U.S. here. The term chickenization is actually a term that I got from the great book by Christopher Leonard, The Meat Racket. And it's a term that the pork and beef industry use to describe what is happening to them, how pork and beef are becoming chickenized, which is to say they're adopting this really terrifying business model. Here's the business model. A chicken farmer needs one thing, basically. Well, few things, but one thing is essential, life or death, which is uh, the ability to get their chickens to a grocery store so somebody will buy them. And because of really significant changes in antitrust law that happened around the 1980s, the chicken farmer no longer faces a whole suite of options of different distributors which they could go to to get their chicken to market. Instead, the industry, like so many industries, has been totally consolidated. So there's basically three, four chicken distributors. Think Tyson, Purdue, Pilgrims. And and they've divided up the country uh, regionally. So a chicken farmer in one area of North Carolina will have to use Tyson's to get their chickens to market. Well, Tyson's then uses this incredible power to exercise all kinds of forms of control over the chicken farmer. They look independent. They have their own chicken house. It looks like they're a small business person. But in fact, Tyson says, yeah, well, you can do whatever you want. But if you don't use our feed, we're not taking your chicken to market. If you don't use our eggs, we're not taking your chicken to market. If you don't use our consultants are particular specifications of how to build your chicken house, basically exercising control without taking responsibility. And so all the chicken farmers do all that. And then Tyson says, and you have to sign an arbitration contract. So if we get into a conflict later, you can't sue us in open court. And we get to collect all kinds of data from your farm and spy on you. And you can't talk to your neighbors. You also have to sign a contract that seals your lips. You can't find out how much your neighbors are getting paid, and you're going to get paid different amounts every month. So the farmer is then in a position of rational paranoia. If he or she gets paid a different amount one month, is it because they spoke out against this system? And there's a lot of farmers, um, I spoke to some, and it's been widely reported, who have reported retaliation when they have spoken up against their uh, distributors. Is it because of the weather? Is it because they're subject to an experiment? Maybe Tyson is giving 50 farmers one kind of seed, and another 200 farmers another kind, and suddenly their profits are plummeting. They're making poverty wages... And I spoke to chicken farmers, and one of the things that really comes through is the level of depression and almost debilitating rage that farmers feel when you are subject to this arbitrary power but can't see through it. In fact, the suicide rates are are very high. So that's the story of what's happening in chicken farming, but you may have already heard the echoes in here. That's the story of what's happening to Uber drivers. Uber drivers also look independent uh, and there's these wonderful fights to correctly classify them as employees, although that won't solve all the problems. But they are paid different amounts, experimented on, required to sign arbitration clauses. In this black box, there's also very high levels of depression. And this is the same posture that Amazon sellers face in relationship to Amazon. Over 2 million sellers who depend on Amazon for life or death for their businesses, subject to Amazon's experimentation, spying, and extraction. And something that is very, I wrote this book before the pandemic, but something that is very front of mind right now is the way in which restaurants who are facing just a devastating pandemic-related crises, also have the same relationship to delivery apps because just as a chicken farmer needs Tyson to get to market, a restaurant requires uh, Grubhub, Seamless, the delivery apps to stay alive. If 10, 15% of restaurant revenues depend on delivery, you can't survive if one of these platforms kicks you off. And the platforms have the capacity to charge enormous rates extract data. So it's not just gig work. This is a feudal form of government that is spreading across all these different industries. And I first wanted to depress you, but second want to empower you in, in reading this book. Because the good news is, once you see this not as a technological feat, but as an old monopoly business model that keeps rearing its head every 30 or 40 years, you actually can feel a lot more power over it because we can ban these kinds of structures, uh, and we have in the past.
0: Yeah, actually, I think that's really the number one takeaway is that this is just an old model dressed up with quote-unquote new technology that enables the monopolists to take advantage of workers, uh, everyday people like they always have or that is their propensity to do. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. I mean, it's the kind of thing where I think the logic of businesses is to want to maximize profits instead of maybe just profit-seeking, but really it's a different thing to profit-seek and to maximize profits and to impose this regime on us. But I think maybe a, a good question here is to talk about how we arrived here, because like you said, the antitrust movement used to be really healthy and very ambitious. And then in the 80s, it, it stopped. What happened then? And how do we find ourselves where we are today as a result of what happened in the 80s?
1: Yeah, it was a real transformational moment. And I think people know that when they hear about Reagan, you know, that that Reagan came in with a not so masked white nostalgia, anti-civil rights agenda, a promise to quote unquote, return America to a 1950s America. So he came in with an agenda that was very much about race, It was also very much about deregulation. And at the heart of that deregulatory agenda was antitrust. What you see when you look at the profiles of Reagan's wrecking crew that he brought in from California is that they talked about antitrust. This wasn't some side issue. The agenda was do something about these terrible civil rights laws and gut antitrust. And actually on the flip side, you'd see senators like senator phil hart one of the key architects of the voting rights act of 65 who had two passions antitrust and civil rights and he saw them as deeply connected so reagan and reagan's team also saw them as deeply connected and came in appointed hundreds of judges put in regulators who didn't believe in the regulation but it wasn't just non-enforcement it was actually an ideological transformation. And it, it shows the power of ideas, which is both very dangerous and also, again, hopeful, because when, when you believe in the power of ideas, you know that things can change, even if power looks pretty stuck right now. So the new idea that Reagan brought in is an idea that was popularized by Bork, the Supreme Court nominee who didn't make it, not the only one, but Bork had really pushed the idea that antitrust laws were uh, tools of abuse, and the only real purpose of antitrust laws was to protect consumer price. And what Bork was taking on is a much longer tradition, a tradition that goes back, not just to the Sherman Act of the late 19th century, but actually to the founding of our country and before, where you see in corporate uh, seeds in corporate law of concerns about um, excess corporate power becoming a form of government. The old understanding pre-1980 is that you need strong antitrust laws as a democracy protection. And this is actually how I come in. I'm a democracy activist. I write about corruption in my scholarship. I've written about structures to protect democracy. And before 1980, we widely understood that antitrust was important the way that campaign finance was important. That if you wanna protect democracy, you need strong antitrust laws. And that's something that Bork and Reagan's team totally rejected. Now that was a pretty terrible little era there, but you might think, okay, well, when Democrats got back in charge or Democrats in the opposition party would constantly be raising this issue and fighting to Break up big companies fighting to uh, overturn bad court decisions when you saw Reagan uh, judges making bad decisions. But no, instead, we actually saw Clinton, Bush, not not as surprisingly, Obama, leadership in the Democratic Party, basically ignoring antitrust as a serious area of concern. By the way, people understand this. Like We've done polling, and there's overwhelming support for more antitrust enforcement, for trust-busting 2.0, for anti-monopoly work. People hate corporate monopolies. And it's actually one of those areas where the people are way ahead of politicians in understanding the power structures in this country.
0: Yes, I think this is one of the things that people are not really talking about in the the mainstream media, that monopolists seek political power, and so that the only way to address this problem with monopolies is through political action. When we come back, we're going to talk about the ways we can take real concrete action to tackle monopolies above and beyond virtue signaling and boycotts. But first... Oh, that sound makes me smile. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com hopeful, all lowercase. I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run your own business. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from first sale to full scale it's a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere giving you the resources once reserved for big business customized just for you with a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life and tools to manage and drive sales get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Gain knowledge and confidence with the resources to help you succeed. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities, and every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com hopeful, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com hopeful right now. Woke AF Daily is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Get woke with my bevy of special guests from the worlds of news and politics, arts, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and end on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world, filter through the powerful voice of a Black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with me, Danielle Moody. And now let's return to my conversation with Zephyr Teachout about monopolies, antitrust and people power. You talk at length about the tools that we already have at our disposal and that we can pull back out of the drawer and sharpen and fix this problem once more like we did, you know, in the late 19th century and especially also during the New Deal. But so what is the first thing that we should be doing?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think of it as a suite of tools, so I want to talk about all of them, and they should all be used simultaneously. So the first thing then, the first bucket, is the executive power in this area is actually really substantial, as we saw with Reagan in, in the destructive side of things. But you have both the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission as key enforcers who basically have been unbelievably passive through administration after administration. And i you hear a laugh in my voice, but it's the the laugh of tragedy. The key thing is enforcers doing two things. One is the Federal Trade Commission has the capacity to promulgate rules. In fact, antitrust laws are incredibly short. Like, If you read the Sherman Act, you've probably heard, if you've heard of antitrust laws, maybe you've heard of the Sherman Act or Clayton Act, and maybe you imagine a big bound volume. It's about a paragraph and it says you can't monopolize. So it is up to the agency, the Federal Trade Commission, to promulgate rules that say, okay, here are the baselines, here's some number values that we're gonna attach. So when you, you know when say, two companies want to merge when we're going to try to block a merger. One of the most important things that a Biden-Harris FTC chair can do is promulgate new rules that are like speed limits. And right now it's as if there's effectively no speed limit on the highway, and then you put in 65 mile an hour speed limits, it would transform merger policy. Just so you know, this is exactly what Reagan did. When Reagan came in, his agencies promulgated new rules that said, basically anything goes, overturning the 1968 rules. If Biden-Harris just put back in place those 1968 rules, totally transformational. They've also just got to start doing their job. Congress and the states also need to, to step up. The, the judicial branch at the lower level, but also in a series of really terrible Supreme Court opinions has dulled the edge of some of our most powerful anti-monopoly laws. These are bad law, bad history, bad interpretation cases, but they're statutory interpretation cases and Congress should just step up and say, hey, that was the wrong interpretation. Here's the right interpretation, which it does in every other area. And then one of the most exciting things is what's happening in states. When you see, for instance, in New Jersey, they've passed a law limiting the ability of delivery apps to gouge restaurants. That's state anti-monopoly law. So I I think one of my messages, I can tell you about these array of tools, but, but one of the things that really concerns me is that the public feels intimidated around antitrust. Like if I ask most people, do you think we need stronger labor laws? They'll say, yeah, are you an economist? No, I don't need to be an economist to know that workers are getting screwed. Excuse my language, I don't know if that's allowed on this podcast. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> okay, do you think we need to tax the rich? Yeah, I don't need to be an economist to know that. Do you think we need to strengthen antitrust laws? People say, yeah, but there's also a lot of feeling of like, well, I'm not an expert. I, I know companies have too much power, but, but I'm not an economist. There's this incredible, like priestly deference to economists in this area. Trust your gut here. Go to your lawmaker, call Chuck Schumer, say, I can tell you that companies have too much power and I have too little, do something about it. And that's the level at which we can have political activities because the solutions are there. The agencies have incredible power if they feel the political pressure to use it. Congress has great ideas for laws it can pass if it feels the political pressure to use it. The thing that's been missing is the public stepping up and demanding that our elected officials protect us from this tyrannical form of power.
0: So in addition to calling our senator, like Chuck Schumer, what else could I be doing as an everyday citizen to advance this cause, which is to say, to demand that we enforce antitrust laws, but also to go further and break up companies like Facebook and Google who are really they really have a vice grip on our information, the things that we buy, but essentially on our lives in many ways.
1: Absolutely. So I'll tell you where I want to get and then you can help me get there. We used to have thousands of antitrust leagues all around the country in the late 19th century. Anti-monopoly was a core part of political activism really through the New Deal. And then in some ways, because FDR was so much a trust buster, Teddy Roosevelt gets all the credit, but he wasn't nearly the the trust buster that that FDR was and didn't have nearly the vision of a a thriving economy that FDR did, especially in his second term going forward, Um, that he did it so well that it actually took some of the energy out of it. But we need to get back to not just having local environmental groups, but local antitrust groups. Probably the closest we got to that was Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> that was a, a national antitrust when it comes to big banks, break up the big banks uh, moment. So we need to get there. In the meantime, though, it can be confusing as a member of a political community because if those groups aren't there, then you say, well, what do I join? How do we get from here to there where it's a, a part of our politics? So there's a few incredible organizations that I encourage people to follow on social media, support and engage in their actions. One is Athena. Athena is a combination of labor and small business and environmental and privacy organizations and activists who are totally committed to breaking up Amazon. And when it comes in the hierarchy of would-be tyrants, Amazon and Bezos is pretty high up there. So sort of proving that we can take on Amazon as New York activists did and keeping them away from billions in subsidies, proving that we can take on Amazon is really important. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance is an incredible group that is doing activity in this area. The American Economic Liberties Project, the Open Markets Institute, these are all different groups that can use I'm not not just your support, but just engage, follow the actions they're doing because they are right now connecting this fight to lawmakers, creating real actions. And so some of the things that they are starting to do are marches. When's the last time that you march to break up a big company? It's about time to start. Uh call your state senator. There's real activity here in New York. Call your city council member. The two things I would then say is, one, I always think collective action is more powerful than individual action. So join one of these growing collectives. And then on an individual basis, you don't need to be an expert. Anytime you encounter a lawmaker, say, what are you doing about these monopolies? Just ask that, what are you doing? And that is part of building this incipient movement that really is gaining energy. I mean, AOC has been a leader on this. Um, So it's actually an exciting, as terrifying as it is, an exciting time to get in on the ground floor on a a new anti-monopoly moment.
0: I wanted to ask you a question in terms of boycotting. I think there's a deep misunderstanding of our role as citizens and that most people reflexively you know, boycott Uber or boycott using Amazon, but really we need political action. But my question is, how would you explain that boycotting really is not the solution?
1: Yeah. So try boycotting Facebook as an activist. Well, maybe you can go to Instagram. You can't use Messenger, you will basically no longer be able to do your job of raising awareness around whatever issue you're, you're focused on. Now try boycotting Amazon or Facebook as a small business owner. Uh, again, first of all, Facebook owns so many of these other companies that if you, if you boycott Facebook but keep your Instagram alive, you're not actually um, boycotting Facebook. And Facebook knows this. It knows that small businesses, journalists, activists, politicians, people who want to keep in touch with their grandparents during COVID need to use this platform to keep in touch. And so it's not worried about the the boycott. I have a chapter in the book called, No, You Don't Need to Quit Facebook, basically making this point that in monopolized economies, you hear this language, vote with your feet. In monopolized economies, you actually don't have the leverage that you think you do. Yeah, if there's 20 cereal companies and one cereal company is burning down rainforests and 19 others, and you boycott that one cereal company, that could have an impact. But if there's two social media companies that wink and nod with each other and aren't about to change their business model, your leaving one doesn't make a difference. But what you can do is call Chuck Schumer, who has not been good on big tech, and say why aren't you doing something about Facebook's business model? You have a lot more leverage there. I also think that the boycott and ethical consumerism mentality, and I guess I alluded to this, first of all, there's huge class dynamics on here. There's some people who can leave Amazon and and go to their cute local bookstore, but there's plenty of places where people actually really rely on Amazon. So when you hear about Amazon helping out ICE with facial recognition, You might be tempted to say well i'll stop using it that that isn't available to everybody but what is available to everybody is to go to chuck schumer and then finally i think there's a lot of weird guilt that comes up around ethical consumerism both guilt and pride and both can be really dangerous the guilt is that well if i haven't boycotted amazon am i allowed to uh go to de blasio and tell him to not give him a subsidy yes you can you know you absolutely can it's a It's a false choice, just the same way that you can keep your kids in public school and still uh, be talking to the principal about how you want to change the system there. You can keep drinking water, even while you're concerned about the water system. You can keep using these infrastructural products while objecting to the public. And then the pride, which isn't what I included in my book, but I've, I've learned since, is that it turns out that people who choose not to use products for ethical reasons are actually less likely to take political action. So it's actually, it's inhibiting the key. I think that our ethical consumer boycott approach has almost led us to accept these as our overlords. It's like we've accepted Mark Zuckerberg as our as the sort of king of communications, and privacy. And that is crazy. I don't want to be begging Mark Zuckerberg. I would never select him to be my my king, even if I believed in kings. I would never want Jeff Bezos to be my emperor, even if I believed in emperors. We, sh- we have to turn to the tools that actually can do something about it, as opposed to sort of in this being in this supplicant position, begging
0: Zuckerberg to be a, a nicer overlord. But so what would it look like to break up one of them, Facebook or Amazon, whichever one you want to talk about, how would it actually look to the consumer and what would it do to the business model?
1: So let's just take Amazon because I think it's the easiest. It may seem like the hardest, but it's the easiest. So Amazon has a service that connects buyers and sellers and it separately owns businesses that are sellers and it separately owns warehouses and shipping services and actually about 80 other things but those are so those are the three key things that you probably run into as somebody buying on Amazon. There is no reason that Amazon the connecting service needs to also own the warehouses and shipping. And in fact, if you talk to Amazon sellers, they'll regularly tell you how Amazon basically bullies sellers into using its shipping products because If you use it shipping products, sellers believe they are more likely to get good placements in search results. There's nothing neutral in Amazon search results in case I'm in case I'm the first one to tell you this. When you search for shoes, it is not sending you the quote unquote best shoes. It has an algorithm that prefers sellers that pay Amazon in other ways. So it is far, far from neutral. So Amazon. The platform should be split up from Amazon, the warehouses. There's no reason those two should be together and it creates all kinds of different conflicts of interest. Amazon, the platform should be split up from Amazon that is also selling on the platform, selling shoes, competing with the other shoe sellers, because basically Amazon is now in a position to steal data from the, the companies on its platform and then compete against them. And then what's left is you'll have this platform, the seller and buyer platform. And that we should treat like we do railroads. Like you can exist and you can be private, but you basically have to be treated like a public utility. You have to have fair, open access for all, non-discrimination principles apply. And this is again where once you get out of thinking about this in terms of tech, you can see how many tools we have. Like this is just the railroad problem again. So let's split it off from the things that create conflicts of interest. Amazon shouldn't also own the advertising company that (laughs) <laughs> that is on Amazon that that's crazy so it's break up means break up by function in a lot of these cases and then sometimes you might also want to break up horizontally you could have a hundred different Amazons I myself am not in favor of that I think it's actually there's a real value in having one or two, maybe four marketplaces, it doesn't need to be just one, and then having them be subject to public utility regulation. So I think those are the key elements is... If you're familiar with Glass-Steagall, it's like Glass-Steagall for everything, break up by function. These ideas are not just before 1980, throughout the 19th century. Corporate law had these ideas embedded. The idea that you have one line of business, you shouldn't have another line of business that might create conflicts of interest. Now there's some companies that you can just straight break up by size, like shoe companies, before 1980, we'd say, hey, you know, if a shoe company is more than 5% in the market and wants to buy another shoe company, that's too much. So we should just have a default of certain kinds of consumer goods. The economy of scale story is way oversold. You can have 20 shoe companies. You don't need to have four.
0: (laughs) Yes, there's a big enough market for everybody that they can all make money, even if you have 20 shoe companies. I actually used to work on Wall Street, and I used to always say the trade is big enough for everybody. Yes. <laughs> if you want to right. trade in the stock, everybody can get in and make money. Yeah. But So I have a personal question for you. How did you get into this? How come you are so invested in finding justice, in democracy, and how did you come to do this work on monopolies?
1: Yeah. I guess I probably need some psychotherapy to understand why I care so much about people having power. <laughs> but well, maybe, but it's, how did you first but, get but, into it? Um, I actually was a death penalty lawyer. Uh, it was my first job at, out of law school, and I represented people on death row. And I had a client who, trial lawyer, spent all of eight hours researching the facts on his case. who was basically thrown away and treated as... Not a full human being. You saw how law can be bent to serve the powerful. And growing up in the 70s, pre-pre Reagan, um, although it, the 70s are sometimes remembered as a um, moment of dealing with long lines at gas stations and and uh, difficult economy, and Nixon. All those things are true, but there was also a time of a deep democratic hope, and it actually turns out it was the time of one of the greatest moments of equality, Uh, across the board and also racial equality in American history. And that promise not only hasn't been fulfilled, it's been punched in the face. And you've seen incredible rising inequality, disempowerment, growing incarceration, tears of people with power in this country from the 80s onward. So maybe the the psychotherapist I don't have would tell me I'm, I'm longing for that hope. The hope in that brief moment after the civil rights successes of the 60s substantial civil rights success of the issues when the country was becoming more equal. I hope that we can uh, start moving in that direction again instead of the direction we've been moving in the 80s. And to answer the easier question to answer is how I got into anti-monopoly work, which is that most of my career I focused on anti-corruption work. My research was cited in dissent in Citizens United, which I guess is a badge of honor, perhaps more so is Scalia going out of his way in concurrence to say how much he disagreed with me in Citizens United, but really focused on what we might think of as traditional anti-corruption tools. And I have come to believe that those tools are really important. Campaign finance is really important. But if you allow the gross accumulation of private power, that private power will take over and more directly, not just corrupt, but become government. So a serious democracy agenda requires an antitrust agenda. And I'm saying something that would be like, yeah, I know, whatever, everybody knows that to people in 1950, 1908, 1880, 1850. But I feel like progressives forgot this. And I spend most of my time with progressives and I kind of want to shake the shoulders of progressives and say, stop fighting just on policy. We've got to fight on power, like (laughs) stop fighting what Pfizer did yesterday and start fighting Pfizer's existence. Move past corporate accountability and move towards corporate illegitimacy because otherwise we've got this creeping form of tyranny in our midst and maybe you'll get a good five years where you get a good tyrant, but I'm not a monarchist. I believe that people are pretty smart. They're a lot smarter than elites give them credit for and they should have power over their own lives.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. So why do you think people or progressives have forgotten that this is a battle about power as opposed to policy.
1: Yeah, it's a mystery. <laughs> so here's, here's some hypotheses, and I raise some of these hypotheses. One, there's these two different democratic strains. One is that there's a democratic strain, I wouldn't call it progressive, the Clinton strain, that basically I think they sold out for money and politics reasons. And the Democrats of that ilk stopped understanding that their job was to protect people from excess power. And they did so in part because of campaign finance. I mean, these things are deeply connected. They started basically said, hey, we can win if we get money from Wall Street, and we can win if we get money from Amazon. Let's win. That's a compromise we'll make. And I actually think that's a compromise that goes to the heart of what the party should, should be about. A second strain comes from the far left, which is a belief that we shouldn't have markets at all. And I actually think this is relatively unspecified. And I think DSA is not like that, you know, democratic socialists and socialists in general aren't anti-market, but there has been this anxiety about being antitrust, because antitrust admits that you actually believe that private parties are going to make the shoes, the shoes are not going to be made by the state. And I don't think the shoes should be made by the state. I want to have that fight. Actually, my first title for this book was Who Will Make the Shoes. That's good. (laughs) Because I was like, not necessarily fighting or disagreeing, but asking, saying like, okay, we're in a revolutionary moment, but life isn't always better after the revolution. Like, what do we want the economy to look like? What does a moral economy look like? My very progressive friends, and I don't think anybody would deny that I'm very progressive and pretty left. So... some things should be nationalized, but a lot of things, I think there's a real value in having markets. And I think that there is a strain in the left that resists even engaging in market structure questions because it assumes you're in markets. And I I think there's a few things that are mistaken there. Uh, One is that we have so much more power over corporate law than we act like. When I was at uh, Occupy Wall Street, I ended up explaining to people, they were like, how can I organize an event but not get sued if somebody... Trips and falls, and sort of explaining how corporate law came to be, <laughs> you know, like well, there's this form that you can use, and really understanding the value that corporate law can provide and the unbelievable pathologies of contemporary corporate law is important. Instead of just saying no markets, and, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to set up a straw person. I don't think people are saying no markets. I just think it's underspecified, and that there is a strain on the left um, that would probably call itself a Marxist strain that would say, let's get past markets, markets are themselves the, the problem. And then there's a third causal reason, which actually may be the most important, which is that both labor and groups led by Nader and others actually had real successes in the 70s and 80s, but the, the, the sort of key moments were the 70s, in negotiating with really big business to get it to change its plan. And these successes are so inspiring and exciting. And I, I sometimes have fights with my friends in the animal rights realm who are like, we don't want to break up Burger King. We want to negotiate with Burger King, because if we have to negotiate with every single restaurant, it's harder. So both labor and the progressive groups of the 70s really st- began to believe that the best way to a more equal agenda was by having a seat at the table and negotiating with these big companies. That promise is long gone. There used to be a wage benefit for working at a big company, and there is with legacy companies, but not with the new big companies, not with Amazon, for instance. So I think that there's a sort of cultural history of leaders in the left using a power that existed only for a decade or two and and then not wanting to give up that power.
0: Right. It's a little bit of this uh, misconception we have about the Supreme Court as being a place of justice, but actually yes. literally a place <laughs> about conservative power.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so true, because I often am saying that about the court. It's like we, we think of this as a heroic institution that occasionally makes mistakes instead of as an elite institution that occasionally engage heroic behavior. But so much of it is this, like, imagination, this progressive imagination that's built between 65 and and 75. And, like, we got to let go of that.
0: I know. We have to uh, really embrace the reality and and grapple with it in real time. (laughs) Yes, yes. We don't want to. It's because it's hard. I think that's part of the problem. It's comfortable to shop on Amazon and have it arrive on your doorstep without thinking what the repercussions are.
1: Yeah, yeah. At the end
0: of the day. But one of my friends said to me, I would, and of course this is the wrong paradigm as we've already discussed, but she said to me, I would boycott Amazon if only it weren't so convenient. Right. And I thought, there's so much there. <laughs> so much. But anyway, last question. Here we go. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful?
1: Oh my gosh. I am so hopeful about what is happening in New York State and because New York State has been stuck for so long, uh, looking progressive, but actually the center of a lot of inequality. And you have seen not just Democrats take over the state Senate, which unsurprisingly didn't reap all the rewards it should. One of the most exciting and compelling moments for me was when new people who were newly elected, activists who went into using political power, beat big real estate in New York. It was just an extraordinary moment because you're talking about people power versus money power. The moment when in New York, we beat back Amazon. It's an incredible moment against all odds. So what we are seeing is a growing, mature group of people who have a serious desire to wield power. And I think that's really important. For, for decades, activists were kind of, dismissive of politics as dirty. That is no longer true. And coming into positions of power and figuring out how to use that power to take on illegitimate forms of power. We didn't get to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and the interaction of monopoly and race, but groups like Acre are really highlighting that interaction. And I think that's so important to understand how corporate power and bias, discrimination, and structural racism are deeply, deeply connected. And then the, 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 what I mentioned earlier about what's happening at the federal level. We are in a tough position. We are talking about taking on, they, they may not look like kings, but some of the most powerful interests in world history. But there is so much progressive energy and hope and vitality that I can see the other side.
0: Well, I hope you're right. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to talk to you. Next week on Future Hindsight, we are revisiting our conversation with Jennifer Taub. She's a law professor, legal scholar, and advocate whose research and writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, and white-collar crime. Her book is Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White-Collar Crime white-collar crime in America. Just fraud and embezzlement alone costs victims anywhere between $300 billion and $800 billion a year. Tackling a huge problem that's hitting all of us in the pocket. That's next time on Future Hindsight. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged.